begin by thanking council. Let me begin by thanking council for their flexibility in allowing us to begin early. Our last case of today is State versus Singleton, and we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the North Carolina Supreme Court. My name is Ben Zaney. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. I request to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. On a November night here in Raleigh, defendant found a young college student passed out drunk on the sidewalk. Defendant realized what kind of state she was in, but ushered her to his car, drove her away, and raped her while she was physically helpless. The Court of Appeals below held that the indictment language for that offense was defective. That decision was error because it was a conflated analysis. The Court of Appeals split its analysis between analysis typically reserved for long-form indictments and analysis reserved for short-form indictments. As this Court is well aware, an indictment may be charged in a longer short form. A long form would require every essential element of the offense be listed, but a short form requires only the statutory language, the language prescribed by our General Assembly to charge the offense. Below, the Court of Appeals erred because it looked for evidence of an essential element, a mental state of the accused in a short form version of the indictment. Specifically here, the indictment, the short form version of the indictment as required by statute must specify that the defendant carnally knew and abused the victim who was physically helpless at the time. The Court of Appeals held that there was no equivalent for the word abuse, but looked for an equivalent in the sense of one that would demonstrate, words that would demonstrate the defendant's mental state at the time of the offense. The short form does not require that mental state, and so therefore that decision was error. The indictment in this case was, more, was sufficient to meet the short form requirements. As this court has uh, held in TART, you don't need to use the exact language prescribed in the short form statute. A state does not need to charge the exact language prescribed in the short form statute in order to meet the short form requirements. In this case in particular, the disputed language appears to center around the word abuse. However, the short form statute should be taken as a full, not just looking for that particular word. So here, Again, the short form requires some form of did carnally know and abuse a person who was physically helpless. However, the charge below was that the defendant engaged in vaginal intercourse with the victim who was at the time physically helpless. That charge as a whole encompasses the concepts of carnally know and abuse a victim who was physically helpless. And for a comparison case, uh, this court can look to its own decision in Wallace. Uh, in Wallace, uh, the, the court was faced with a series of indictments for rape. Those indictments, the short form version of those indictments required that the state charge ravish and carnally know uh, the victim by force. However, there the state alleged only that the uh, defendant did engage in sexual intercourse with the victim by force. Uh, so in that case, this court looked at the phrase ravish and carnally know as a, as a complete phrase and allowed the, that be substituted for engaged in vaginal intercourse with. In that same way, although the words here are slightly different, the concept is the same. Carnally know and abuse uh, is stood in for by the phrase uh, engaged in vaginal intercourse with the victim. And we know that it was carnal knowledge and abuse because in part, it's, 
the charge says who was at the time the victim was physically helpless. Uh, and so that's what lets us know that there was abuse here. Uh, also in TART, this looked toward the car also in TART, this court looked to uh, the Black's Law Dictionary definition of terms to help it define and understand whether or not words were synonymous. And the court can do so again here uh, by looking at the Black's Law Dictionary definitions for abuse or sexual slash carnal abuse, uh, which is one definition under Black's Law Dictionary. Those definitions are satisfied here by a description of engaging in vaginal intercourse with the victim who was physically helpless at that time. Uh, unless there are any questions from the court on the first part of my argument, I'd like to move on to the second part regarding uh, jurisdictional view of indictments. Does it matter at all that the indictment included an express reference to 14-27.22? Is that a factor at all? I, I think it, I think it is a, the, the short answer is uh, no, Your Honor. I think it would matter for the, for the purposes of um, the second part of my argument, you know, in terms of whether the language of the indictment was sufficient to put a, uh, the, per the defendant on notice to, of what he was defending himself against. I think common sense tells you if you look at an indictment and it has a charge, you know, citation in it, you know where to find the, the elements of the offense that you are charged with. However, um, as I recall, and I can't point to a specific case offhand, Your Honor, but as I recall, uh, this court does not consider that um, to be sufficiently putting the defendant on notice of specific elements of the offense or uh, the short form language of the offense. I do want to, um, I, I, as sort of a follow up to that, Your Honor, I, I wanted to talk about in matter, uh, matter of JU, which is a case that the court decided after the briefs were written in this case. Um, in that case, this court looked to uh, a juvenile petition, which the court treated for all intents and purposes in its opinion as uh, an indictment. The court constantly cited towards cases that were generally applicable to indictments rather than just juvenile petitions. Uh, and in that case, uh, the court noted that inferences can be made from the uh, indictment language, or sorry, the juvenile petition language in that case that supports the element of the crime such that a common person may know what was intended. And I think that that standard, if applied here, uh, would, again, uh, consistent with not just Wallace, but exceeding Wallace in terms of um, showing that carnally known abuse was sufficiently charged in this case. Counsel, the, the phrase and abuse, I understood your critiques of what the Court of Appeals did with that, but essentially is, is your reading that carnally known abuse is synonymous, if, if what you're arguing is that synonymous with vaginal intercourse, does that mean that the and abuse, are, it, those are superfluous words, that is if, it, if the short form just said had um, carnally knew and didn't have the and, and abuse, would that be synonymous with have vaginal intercourse with? So to answer your question, Your Honor, I think that the way that those words are understood now, um, I think that they are synonymous or at least they're partnered together for the concept of vaginal intercourse with someone is physically helpless or there's another terminal element that indicates that the individual could not consent to the, to the offense. So uh, to answer your, your question, I do think that, I think it has to be interpreted as a, as a phrase together. I understand that the words are, that there's, there's two words there, but it, it's the same as 
in Wallace where you have Ravish and Carnally New. I mean, in theory, uh, those words may mean the same thing, may not, but together, it's the, the concept is that those words appear together in the, uh, in the short form version of the statute and that's replaced with, in, in Wallace, with vaginal intercourse. And I think that that same concept is applied here. But doesn't that interpretation take into its next logical step create a problem suggesting that someone who's physically helpless can't consent um, to that carnal knowledge? I mean, doesn't, which is to say, if, if the abuse doesn't do any work, if someone is having um, sexual relations with a, a, a man is having sexual relations with his uh, quadriplegic wife, she might be physically helpless, but surely she can she is capable of consenting to vaginal intercourse uh, yeah, yes your honor i understand that point i think that um as the court here held in rankin though you don't have to charge defenses to an, an offense in the indictment and um in this case although i'm not sure that there's a case cited for it in the briefs here i think that consent i think it's understood that consent in that type of charge would be a defense not a uh, not an element of the offense. Um, and so, especially not under the short form version. Um, so I, I suppose that that would be my answer to your question, Your Honor. I'd like to move then to the second uh, part of the state's argument regarding uh, indictments and whether or not they confer jurisdiction. And just to be clear about the second part of your argument, yes, we only reach that if we disagree with your first argument. Yes, yes, Your Honor. Okay. Uh, yes, that is correct. Uh, Yes, uh, it's an alternative argument, and it's phrased that way in the briefs, Your Honor. Uh, but yes, so under this argument, if this court were to find that this indictment as written is defective, uh, the state would nonetheless ask that this court affirm the judgment of the trial court, reverse the Court of Appeals below uh, on the basis that uh, the, uh, the rule that indictments give jurisdiction is an outdated and obsolete rule, uh, as this court noted in its recent decision in matter of JU. Uh, and this court would not be alone in reaching that conclusion. There has been movement both internal to this, to, within this court's recent jurisprudence as well as external in other states and in the federal system uh, away from this, under, this, this idea that um, jurisdiction requires uh, an indictment or a valid indictment. Uh, as, the, the, uh, as our neighbors to the South pointed out, uh, the South Carolina Supreme Court pointed out when it uh, recently uh, in, within the last 20 years, a judge, this, a similar issue, it uh, held that, you know, subject matter jurisdiction of the trial court and sufficiency of the indictment are two distinct concepts and the blending of the concepts serve to only confuse the issues. Uh, this court has held that subject matter jurisdiction is the power to hear a case and pass on its merits. That power is plainly granted in superior courts in this uh, state by the North Carolina Constitution and by North Carolina statutes. The North Carolina Constitution grants superior courts original jurisdiction uh, and North Carolina statutes note that the Superior Court has exclusive original jurisdiction over criminal actions. Uh, that's where the courts, the Superior Courts, uh, such as in this case, get their jurisdiction. They don't get it from the indictment. Uh, and to illustrate the, um, I don't want to say ridiculousness of it, but sort of the issues that can arise um, beyond the issues of, of sort of judicial economy and, and fairness uh, and, and preservation, but the issues that can arise are uh, you know, that we can, this, this court has held or the jurisprudence allows, North Carolina jurisprudence allows individuals to waive indictment. You can waive indictment uh, and if you do that, in theory, under a jurisdictional viewpoint of indictments, you're waiving jurisdiction. 
But as every law student is taught early on in law school, you cannot waive jurisdiction. It's not a waivable issue, and that's the common understanding of it. Uh, and so as it exists right now, there's this dichotomy where a defendant could waive indictment, but if somehow that, and by doing so, waive jurisdiction, but if somehow the waiver was invalid, uh, as it was in a recent, uh, within the last four years, North Carolina Court of Appeals case, states, State versus Futrell, um, there the defendant waived, uh, attempted to waive indictment, and the defendant's attorney failed to sign the indictment. The Court of Appeals below noted that and found that uh, the jurisdiction, that the failed indictment deprived the trial court of jurisdiction to accept, I believe it was a plea in that case, uh, and so therefore uh, remanded the court, the matter to the court, I believe in that case, for further proceedings on whether or not there was a defective waiver. But nonetheless, that seems uh, like a legal impossibility that one could, under our system, by waiving indictment, waive jurisdiction. Of course, there's also the concern that um, both this court seemed to address in matter JU and also was uh, sounded off by the Supreme Court in U.S. v. Cotton, which is, um, as this court put in matter of JU, the common law rule that effective indictments rob a court of jurisdiction is an obsolete rule that detrimentally impacts the administration of justice in our state. Uh, and this, this appears to be referring to just the wasted effort that goes into a trial on the parts of witnesses, jurors, victims, and so on and so forth when um, an issue is known uh, that if it's raised beforehand could uh, have adjusted course. Um, the court can, it gives the court an opportunity to rule and apply our normal preservation rules to that issue uh, in order to avoid um, a trial being uh, overruled by something that happened before anyone ever set foot in the courtroom. Uh, and as the court decided in, as our Supreme Court unanimously decided in Cotton, all nine justices signing on to that opinion, that um, the real harm in that case, as they saw it in, in that particular instance, was that the, ag that the defendant in that case would um, receive a, a lesser punishment. The, the term in that case had to do with a term of aggravation, not the term foundational to the indictment itself alleging an offense, but that the defendant would receive a lesser punishment based on an issue that he never objected to at trial. Uh, and as this court um, has previously held in uh, Vermani v. Presbyterian Health Services Corporation, a case that the state uh, added in a memo of additional authorities uh, recently, that it is this court's uh, obligation as the last resort of North Carolina can modify the common law of North Carolina to ensure that it has not become obsolete or repugnant to the freedom or independence of the state in our form of government. Uh, and also refers to a statute that um, at that time, the court seemed surprised to find on the books, uh, based on its phrasing in, in, in the opinion, uh, uh, Section 4-1, which simply uh, is the legislature saying that it is this court's uh, role to um, essentially manage the common law and note when it has become obsolete. Uh, that's, of course, my paraphrasing. That's not literally what the statute um, says word for word, but that's Nonetheless, this court's role and this court, as it has already recognized in matter JU, used the word, this is an obsolete rule. Uh, the time seems ripe for this court to, um, to, to move on from it and to move us into, uh, make us more consistent with uh, other modern jurisprudence. Unless there are any other questions, I'll save the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee.
Good afternoon, and may it please the court. My name is Danielle Blass, and I represent Mr. Singleton, the defendant appellee in this matter. Today, Mr. Singleton respectfully asks this court to affirm the unanimous decision of the Court of Appeals vacating his conviction for second-degree forcible rape because the indictment against him was fatally defective in that it failed to allege facts in support of each element, failed to allege the language of the statutory short form, and failed to allege synonymous language. I'd like to start by talking about abuse a person as a term of art. Because the term abuse a person was required by the statutory short form in 144.1, but was omitted from the indictment, the Court of Appeals looked to determine what was the legal import of this term. And they found that the legal import of the term was that the defendant knew or reasonably should have known that the victim was physically helpless and took advantage of that. That's page 20 of the opinion. The Court of Appeals definition complies with the rules of statutory interpretation because it gives the term meaning within the context of the statute that makes sense and it avoids rendering the term redundant. So Mr. Singleton believes that that is the correct definition of the term. But we also understand that the state is asking for an alternative uh, definition. And what I understood from the briefs was that the suggestion of the state was to kind of smush together a couple of definitions from Black's Law Dictionary um, to define the term as an unlawful or wrongful sex act that involves cruel or violent treatment of someone. And I'm not sure if today they're arguing essentially that actually the term doesn't have meaning at all. Um, if the argument is that the term doesn't have meaning at all, I would argue that that is in violation of the rules of statutory interpretation where you know, we, we approach the statute that uh, with understanding that the General Assembly gave precise legal import. Um, uh, and so we, we have to find meaning in a term like abuse a person um, and, and not make it redundant to carnally know. Um, but I want to emphasize that whichever way the court defines the term, whether they define it as the Court of Appeals did or whether they define it as um, the state had initially argued as the sort of cruel or wrongful sex act, all that the indictment alleges is intercourse with a physically helpless person. And sexual intercourse with a physically helpless person is not cruel, it is not violence, and it is not abuse. It is only those things if there is a lack of consent and if the defendant knew or should have known that they were physically helpless. And we can use State v. Holden, which came before this court in 1994, to kind of talk through what does that look like. So in that case, Mr. Holden was convicted of first degree murder, and he argued to this court that a prior conviction under 2722A2 is not a crime of violence that could be submitted as an aggravating circumstance in favor of the death penalty. And this court noted that when they look through the statute, there are these three theories of the offense. One is mental incapacitation, another is mental disability, and those are statutorily defined as persons who are incapable of consent. The third theory is different. That is physical helplessness. And to the justice's point, that is a group of people who actually, per Holden, are capable of consent. Counsel, what is what um, significance uh, from your perspective, should we accord to the words unlawfully, willfully, and felonious, feloniously engaged in vaginal intercourse? Because I think uh, I'm worried you want us to erase those words from the indictment. And don't do those do some work given that the legislature can 
eliminate elements um, from the long form indictment? Your Honor, I think that's a fair question and something that this court has grappled with for a while. And um, I'd like to take some time to answer it. I do not think that the words unlawfully, willfully, and feloniously can subsume any elements or otherwise cure a defective indictment. Um, because the law is that the indictment needs to either allege facts in support of each element or it needs to allege the precise legal import of the, um, the, the language of the statutory short form or synonymous language. Um, and so um, I think that we have plenty of cases where the indictment did allege unlawfully, willfully, and feloniously, but those words did not cure an otherwise defective indictment. You know, example of that would be Rankin, which came before this court in 2018, where um, you know the, the allegation in the indictment was unlawfully, willfully, and feloniously dumped trash on a public property owned by the city of Greensboro, but the element of this is not a garbage dump and the person was unauthorized was not alleged. And so those words, unlawfully, willfully, and feloniously dumped trash were not curative of those missing elements. And I think, excuse me, and I think the same should be true here. Um, further, we have crimes that elevate from a misdemeanor to a felony um, with the addition of one element. And uh, my understanding is the courts have always held that the allegation of that element is required regardless of whether um, there's that kind of initial sort of boilerplate language of unlawfully, willfully, and feloniously. So an example would be making and uttering forged checks, right? It's a felony if the check is for $2,000 or more. That element has to be alleged. Um, and that language isn't curative. The same goes for larceny, where it moves from a misdemeanor to a felony if the amount is over $1,000. The same goes for carrying a concealed gun, where it moves to a felony on the second conviction. That fact of the subsequent conviction has to be alleged. Um, and then also, when we zoom out um, in the statute and look at, um, in 144.1, there are these three sections. And the middle statutory short form is for statutory rape. And that one includes unlawfully, willfully, feloniously, but we're talking about a crime that doesn't require willful, right? You don't have to, a defendant does not have to intend to have unlawful sex. They have to just intend to have that sexual intercourse regardless of whether they thought it was legal or not. So I think that's another example of how we see the lack of meaning, at least in terms of being able to cure an otherwise defective indictment. And then globally, I think zooming out a little bit more, you know, the General Assembly has created these statutory short forms. And I think the risk is, um, you know, if this court were to allow those words to subsume other elements or cure a defective indictment, it's kind of the equivalent of a judiciary short short form <laughs> that overrides the statutory short form. And, and I don't think that that you know, is the correct approach. Um, so, How is that not asking us to drain those words of any meaning? Um, it, it seems like you're saying these words really don't tell us anything, but, oh, abuse is critical. Why should we prefer that approach? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair question, Your Honor. I think... Um, of course, we never want to render words meaningless in a statute. I agree. But I think that the case law and the when we zoom out the statute, the way those words are used when you look at 
when Your Honor looks at the statutory short form for statutory rape, I think it shows even if the words have meaning, it's not meaning enough to subsume an element, right? So um, I think, and, and I also think that even if, um, even if those words had some meaning, I, I don't see how we could still get to abuse a person, um, at least to the extent of how all the case law says it's not going to subsume an element. It still has to be alleged. Um, I don't think that the state can pick and choose which words it's going to allege from the statutory short form and essentially create its own statutory short form. I think that the General Assembly has created an exception to the general rule where facts in support of each element are required. And so if they're going to use the statutory short form exception, they have to use all the words that have legal import, not just some of them. Um, so uh, the point that I want to make about Holden um, is that this is only a crime of violence. It's only abuse. It's only cruelty or wrongful. If there is sexual intercourse with a physically helpless person, that person does not consent, and the defendant knew or reasonably should have known that uh, the victim was physically helpless. And the next point I want to uh, emphasize sort of in relation to the JU holding is that um, none of these elements imply any of the other elements. And, and I think that this in part, Your Honor, will we'll continue to answer um, your question. So when we talk about physically helpless, the defendant's knowledge of whether the victim was physically helpless and whether there was consent, no, none of those imply the other necessarily. So, but, but I'm sorry uh, to interrupt you, but um, I, I, would, would you agree that the, the factual if allegations, if you take out the unlawfully, willfully, feloniously, that, that just the factual allegations, the, the, the allegation that there was intercourse and that the person was physically helpless, that by itself does not tell you that a crime was committed? Correct. Right? Uh, so... Why doesn't unlawfully then bring in the element that's necessary to make that um, an allegation of, why doesn't it bring in the missing ele element? Because you're saying this happened, A happened, A by itself is lawful. For A to be unlawful, you have to also have B. Right? Why doesn't unlawfully say, well, you've got B? Well, I think... I mean, I'm trying to think through, Your Honor, if, if that were the case, then the state would just be able to allege unlawfully had, sexually intercourse, had sexual intercourse with Jane, and then that would be sufficient. And I, I don't believe that that would be the position of this court, right? Because if you allow it to subsume one element, then how many elements can it subsume? You know, suddenly the, the, the state, you know, prosecutors have a lot of power, and I don't think that it's great policy to give them the power to essentially create their own short form by just saying unlawful intercourse in an indictment. And then, you know, uh, because unlawful behavior can be a whole lot of different things. Yeah, I, I, I understand your argument when I'm, I'm sort of struggling with how do we, uh, you're saying we, we shouldn't read abuse out of the short form. And I, right. so I'm, I'm struggling with 
if we if we're if 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 the canon we're applying is we don't assume there's surplusage, then that would apply to all parts of it. So Right, and I I, I understand your point, Your Honor. I just think that that raises a slippery slope, right? I, I think that what this court has held, uh, the way I read JU, is that words like unlawfully or willfully, or in this case, feloniously, are not gonna subsume elements. It's only if the allegation of one fact necessarily infers another element or another term that the statutory short form requires. That that's how I read the precedent of this court. Thank you. Um, I would like to go through uh, the iterations of why each element does not imply the other to help the court understand why abuse a person cannot just be inferred um, from the facts that are alleged in the indictment. So first, it is possible to do what is alleged, which is to have intercourse with a physically helpless person but the defendant did not know and should not reasonably have known that the victim was physically helpless. So that is, um, the example I can give the court is that that is in a situation where you have a victim who is active and moving. And so I want to share a couple of facts, a few facts from this case, but to be clear, I understand there's no sufficiency argument here. I'm just sharing a few facts so your honors can see what does that look like? What am I talking about? So. For the facts in this case, uh, we know that Jane's big sister left the bar because she did not know that Jane was physically helpless, right? So her own sister did not know that, and otherwise she never would have left. Jane testified that she danced with another sister and a friend at 2 a.m. minutes before she met Mr. Singleton. Again, this is an active person who has been deemed physically helpless, but again, they're moving enough to dance. There was no bruising and no torn clothing, so it appeared she removed her own clothing prior to intercourse. The state did not argue otherwise at trial. She put on all of her own clothes immediately after intercourse per her own testimony. Jane was able to recall phone numbers and she ran almost a mile immediately after intercourse. This is an active person. And for anyone who has ever dealt with someone who is struggling with alcoholism or just someone who's really drunk, then they have seen this, right? Where a person is very active, but then they black out. And that memory loss is not indicative of how they would have appeared to others at the time. When we talk about physically helpless in a context like this, we're talking about how the brain is communicating with the body, pathways that are inside the body that are not visible from outside. And so a person interacting with them might not necessarily know that. And we do have other areas of the law where the court recognizes that someone can be active and moving but then black out. So for example, there's a defense of automatism, which is defined as the state of a person who, though capable of action, is not conscious of what they are doing. So this, is, this law recognizes in other contexts that one could completely black out, but they were active and mobile enough to drive or to kill a person or something in between. Second, a defendant could have sexual intercourse with a physically helpless person who does not consent, but the defendant might not have known, nor should they have known, that, they, uh, that the victim was physically helpless. I can give the court an example of that. Um, an example is where the allegation, um, so there are 
physical helplessness is defined, I think, in 2720 and has three different possible definitions. And one of them is an inability to communicate your unwillingness, right? Inability to communicate your unwillingness is inability to communicate that you don't consent. So if you have an active person who has been deemed physically helpless and they are not communicating that they don't consent, a reasonable person may not realize that they, uh, that they have not consented um, and, or that they, and that they are physically helpless. Um, and third, a person can be physically helpless but give consent. And your honor gave an example, right, of when someone has a medical condition such as paralysis that renders them, them unable to resist the act, but we know they have a due process right to consent to intercourse. Um, so those are kind of the three iterations. And then I also wanna discuss the fact that the um, allegation that she was physically helpless cannot be a fact in support of the element that the defendant knew or should have known. So I'd like to talk about State v. Morrell here to help illustrate that point. Um, in Morrell, the defendant was charged with armed robbery. One of the elements of robbery with a dangerous weapon is that the defendant uh, possessed a dangerous weapon and threatened the victim with it, but that is not what the indictment alleged. The indictment alleged that the victim reasonably believed that the defendant possessed a dangerous weapon. And this court held that the victim's reasonable belief that the defendant possessed a dangerous weapon was not the same as the defendant actually possessing it. And further, that it was not a fact in support of his actual possession, right? And so if the victim's belief about the defendant's status cannot be a fact in support of the defendant's status, then as applied here, sort of in the reverse direction, um, the fact of the status of the victim, physical helplessness, cannot be a fact in support of someone else's reasonable belief about them. Um, and in terms of JU, you know, I, I know that this court um, talked about a juvenile petition in that case. I wanna differentiate um, two big points about a juvenile petition in JU compared with a, adult criminal indictment. A juvenile petition is not drafted by a prosecutor and it does not go before a grand jury for finding a probable cause. Um, that the defendant committed a specific crime. Um, and in addition to that, um, while force was clearly inferable from the facts duly alleged in that case, as I've gone through the iterations for this court today, that is not the case um, here. Um, and if there are no further questions there, I'd like to skip to the state's challenge to the jurisdictional remedy. Um, Mr. Singleton argues today that the state's challenge to the jurisdictional remedy is not within the scope of review. At the Court of Appeals, the state did not raise the issue of a challenge to the jurisdictional remedy. The Court of Appeals opinion was unanimous. And so that puts us, I think, into Rule 16A, um, which would require the, the state to raise the issue in the PDR and in the new briefs. And the state did raise the issue in the new briefs, but not in the PDR. And so I, I would argue it's not properly before the court. And I think that the same thing happened in JU, where the state did not raise the issue at the Court of Appeals, did not raise the issue in the PDR, but did raise the issue in the new briefs, and this court did not reach the issue. Um, 
But if this court does, <laughs> I better take a moment to address it. The court should continue to, put, to employ the jurisdictional remedy. In the 21 years since Cotton, the legislature could have enacted law that responded to Cotton, but it did not. And then in 2018, in Rankin, this court squarely held that the jurisdictional remedy would continue to be applied and that it was upheld by the Criminal Procedure Act. And while the majority and the dissent did not agree on much, they did agree on two important points. One was that the uh, statutes do not explicitly address the jurisdictional remedy. And two, they all agreed that if the jurisdictional remedy were to cease, it would need to be the General Assembly to do it, not this court due to stare decisis. And I'll quote the dissent. Admittedly, at this juncture, the doctrine of stare decisis may justify this unwillingness to consider this question. However, the failings of the common law jurisdictional rule seem to invite legislative re-examination of this question. And in the five years since Rankin, the legislature could have enacted a law to respond to the decision in Rankin, but it did not. The legislative silence speaks volumes. It did not act to um, correct majority opinion that it may have thought was wrong. I think that confirms that, that the majority opinion in Rankin um, uh, was the correct interpretation of, of the Criminal Justice Act. And further, since the dissent invited the legislature to act um, to change the law and the legislature has not done that in five years, I think that also speaks to the, them not wanting to do that. But in addition to that, the Due Process Clause under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments protects my client, Mr. Singleton, against the detrimental retroactive application of judicial modifications to both the common law and the statutes. Accordingly, if this court were to, um, to uh, issue a decision that ended the common law remedy, which I hope it does not, that could not apply to Mr. Singleton. And if the court has no further questions, I'd like to conclude by saying that Mr. Singleton asked this court to uphold the unanimous decision of the Court of Appeals vacating his conviction for second-degree forcible rape based on a fatally defective indictment that failed to give fair notice and failed to confer jurisdiction to the trial court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Just briefly, briefly, Your Honor. One of the things that I'd like to address was that um, the defendant alleged or suggested that this court would be creating a new uh, short form exception, but that's not what the state is asking this court to do. The state is asking this court here find that the words used in this indictment fit within the existing uh, stat, uh, short form language allowed by statute. It's not allowing a new anything. It's simply holding, as this court did in recent cases, that the language here, if uh, looked at from a, in a modern context, inferences can be made that support the elements of the crime such that a common person would know what was intended by the charge. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing was the defendant uh, suggested that um, this court should not make the policy decision of allowing prosecutors additional power to uh, shape indictments. Um, but just to remind this court that 
any court, any decision here wouldn't affect the grand jury right that every defendant would, uh, of course, still be entitled to. Uh, the prosecutors cannot do the indictment themselves. They still need the grand jury. Uh, and so that would uh, help, and I know that that's noted in the dissent in Rankin as well, that um, the grand jury is, to the extent that one is needed, uh, a check on the prosecutor from putting whatever it so whatever the prosecutor so chooses on a piece of paper, um, the grand jury is there to protect pr against that. And then finally, to the extent that the defend uh, defendant talked about some of the, the evidence here about physical helplessness that, that Jane was seen moving in the bar and that she was um, running from the, the defendant ultimately at the at the end of the crime or after the crime. Um, the, the language about Jane's physical helplessness doesn't just come from Jane at trial. At trial, the defendant himself took the stand and testified that when he initially came across Jane, he, he saw her eyes as being wide open and she was not blinking. He then went on, this lady Jane must be in need of medical attention. So as I got closer, as I was walking, she still was not blinking her eyes. And I was like, oh man, I think she's in need of some help. So I kind of looked around to see if I saw a police officer. None was in sight. He then went on, so I got a few feet from her and I said, I leaned in, I said, ma'am, do you need some help? And she didn't answer. So I think to myself, okay, I think she must be in need of some help. So I said to her again in a louder voice, ma'am, do you need some help, some medical help? And she did not respond. And then he also testified about her making noises in the car that made him think that she was going to vomit. And so he stopped. Uh, and so again, that's the evidence about Jane's physical helplessness and it comes from the mouth of the defendant at trial. Um, that's not something that the prosecutor is looking to overreach or something like that. That's from the defendant himself. So ultimately, again, the state rests on its brief and requests that this court find that the short form statutory language was complied with here uh, and overrule the Court of Appeals below. Thank you very much. Counsel, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Um, how do you respond to the argument that a shift from viewing or treating indictments as jurisdictional that, that if there's going to be that shift, it should be made by the legislature and not the court. Y yes, Your Honor. I think that the legislature has given, first, the, the common law view of indictments is within, well, as, as the name implies, is within the common law, which is this court's uh, bread and butter. It's this court's role, as the legislature has already provided in section 4-1, this court's role to maintain uh, a view of the common law for, for jurisprudence. and to strike portions of the common law as they become obsolete. Uh, and so the legislature has given, to the extent that this court needs to wait on the legislature to do anything, the legislature has already given this court the tools to act. It does not need um, the legislature to act uh, here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both.